Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Good morning. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotva, and I'm here in the U.S. Air Force Academy with Lieutenant Colonel Rob Marshall. He's the Deputy Chief of the Research and Scholarship Division at the Center of Character and Leadership Development at the U.S. Air Force Academy. He's a former special operations pilot who led teams up to the highest peak on every continent, in addition to an exhaustive resume of outdoor adventures in more than 40 countries. Thank you so much for this opportunity to interview you. Thanks. It's good to be here, Anna. Yeah, no, it's good for me to be here. You invited me to come over and interview you. How did you end up in this job? It's very unique, and you just showed me the office and the surroundings. It's very cool. Tell me what you did to get up to this point. That's a long question. It's funny that here I am 18 years after graduating from the Air Force Academy. It's proof that life goes in a full circle. But I started here in 1997, basic training, and graduated from the Air Force Academy in 2001. I already knew I loved the outdoors, and that's one reason I came here versus the Naval Academy or West Point. The call of the Colorado Mountains was really important to me, that and our aviation program. But after I graduated from here, and you you can ask, how did I get back to this? It's hard to condense, right, those 18 years, but I went off and I flew, and I kind of had a typical Air Force career focused on special operations. But what was abnormal about my career was my continued love and passion for connecting airmen to the outdoors and connecting people to the outdoors. And while I was flying in between combat missions or combat deployments, I would go out and seek another country to go climbing in or traveling in. And I would invite other airmen, any airmen, basically from around the Air Force. And then that grew into a seven summits program where we wanted to boost morale and physical fitness and resiliency by taking the Air Force flag somewhere no other team had ever tried, which would be the highest point on every continent. And then that ended in 2013. And in 2014, I decided to join the reserves. I thought, hey, this has been really fun. The special ops community has been great, but my passion is even more so connecting people to the outdoors and maybe using it to develop better mental health. Over my 13 years of AFSOC time, I had some pretty tough experiences. So I started putting a lot more time and research into the power of the outdoors, got into the reserves, did some work with REI, did work with nonprofits. And then lo and behold, the Air Force started rehiring essentially reservists on full-time return to active duty program. And so I got invited to come back here by our director, Colonel Mark Anarumo. And he actually interviewed me while I was in Africa. I was out exploring Africa up in the desert. And he interviewed me and hired me to come out here and run experiential and adventure-based leadership development. And that's what I've been doing now for the last three years. Very cool. What does your job entail? What do you do Monday through Friday? Oh, that's a good question. When I got out here, almost right off the bat, I started becoming one of our ropes course instructors. We've got a very robust ropes course here, but it was built in the 90s. I'm a little bit older in terms of its technology, but we use it for character and leadership development. So Sometimes we're taking cadets through that just need to get over their fear of height. Sometimes we're taking cadets through that are seniors or first-class cadets that really need to be challenged in stressful leadership environments. And we can use that ropes course as like, I like to call it as a leadership laboratory with more than one way to solve it. So I spent a bunch of my time that first summer just learning how to do that. It takes 200 hours of OJT, and then you have to do a national certification. I thought it was the single greatest job a major in the Air Force Mm -hmm. could possibly have. And I think that year we probably ran, I think it was something like 2,300 people through our ropes course. And after a first couple months here, I pitched an idea to our one star, our commandant, because I'm going back and forth from the ropes course, but I pitched an idea to expand our program into summer training and make it an official program. 
at the academy. So quickly, my nine to five, my daily job became coming to the office as a pilot. I don't have a traditional background in education or in experiential education, but I started just gobbling up as much data and research, papers, books, whatever I could on different ways to develop leaders and character and using risk and stress in the outdoors. So my nine to five became reading and researching and then trying to distill that into a product that the Air Force Academy and the Air Force could use. And is that what you do currently yes. still? It's still essentially what I'm doing. Yep. Mm -hmm. Even more so on the research side now, mm -hmm. because we believe we're really onto something big here with kind of this adventure-based, higher risk, more uncertainty environment. And really, what am I really doing? I'm just taking my years of experience in the outdoors and in the special ops and taking what I think are the best values of that and bringing it to the Air Force Academy mm -hmm. to build better leaders and more resilient leaders. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd love to come to this discussion again, yeah. because I really would like to ask about the evidence-based practices as they relate to the outdoor experiences. Mm -hmm. Because some people may argue, well, it sounds really cool, but what is the evidence behind this, right? And sounds like exactly you have the answers to some of those questions. You said that you summited seven peaks, the highest peaks in the world. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Yeah. When I was a cadet graduating here, I threw my hat into the air. And I remember the press coverage of our graduation wasn't what I expected. Some cadets had been in trouble around that same time for drinking NyQuil. And the local media decided to call that a drug scandal. Okay. And I felt like, hey, there's 800 of us graduating. That doesn't paint a good picture. There's two cadets that were drinking NyQuil, which is more of a joke than anything to me. Here's 800 students that just graduated. So I started immediately thinking, how can a second lieutenant tell a better story or shape the conversation mm -hmm. to be more productive? And I left five, six days later to Nepal and I started trekking up there by myself. I just wanted to get out away from the academy for a bit and recharge myself in the outdoors. And that is my resilient kind of battery charger is nature. And while I was out there, I saw Mount Everest and I had no interest in climbing it. I had seen pictures. I'd heard people speak growing up in Seattle, where I'm from. I heard people speaking about losing their fingers and their toes. And it just <laughs> sounded like a terrible idea. <laughs> But then when I got to the base of the mountain, I looked up at it and I had a fairly spiritual calling, if you could put it that way, of I should really come back to this mountain. Like I got a strong desire to actually climb it, but for something bigger than myself. I knew an answer would come. Why would I go back? And then over the next few years, I kept thinking about how can one young officer change the conversation? And then I thought, well, what are my skills? And I'm like, well, I can shiver well on the side of a mountain. <laughs> so maybe could I do mountaineering and maybe do a, like a public relations campaign? And I kept thinking about it. And then that's when I was stationed in England at RAF Mildenhall. And I saw that they have a robust outdoor program. They get all of their military members connected to nature very early. And they use it, and we can talk about this later, they use it as a proactive resiliency boosting tour, or you could call it stress inoculation. And they had just sent up a team up Mount Everest, and they didn't make it, but the morale boost to their troops and to their public, I was like, well, wow, that's really cool. And then I thought, well, shoot, they've already done Mount Everest, and Russia's already done Mount Everest, and the Indians and the Chinese and all these other militaries have already climbed Mount Everest. What could we do that would be really unique to light the fire of like excitement and innovation and esprit de corps in our military? So I thought, well, what about doing the seven summits, the highest point on every continent? And I looked and no team had ever tried it. Only wealthy individuals had ever done it. So by that point, you graduated from the academy yeah. and you were flying. Maybe four years after the academy, I've been thinking about it and thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And now the pieces are falling in. Mm -hmm. Hey, the British have a really successful program. I called Air Force Sports. They're like, we don't have anything like that. Mm -hmm. I called the Pentagon. They're like, nope, we don't have anything like that. And mm -hmm. I said, well, can we start something? And they said, no, you can't because it's not an official military sport. It's mm -hmm. not an Olympic sport. And I said, but there's so much value for military members to see other military members taking risk and being resilient and raising the flag over these different continents. So we decided to start a nonprofit. We decided we would go through with it. And right around that time, I was involved with a fatal plane crash that really reminded me, if I don't do this Seven Summits project now, it'll never get done. So that was 2005. And for the next year, every year we climbed another one of the Seven Summits. So we did Europe, 
and then we did Africa, South America, North America, Antarctica, Australia, and then Asia. Mm-hmm. And we did one peak a year until Everest, and we took two years to get ready for Everest. And it was a program that I said, let's just do something awesome that no one's ever tried before, and let's invite as many airmen as possible. And so that's what we did. Mm-hmm. And anybody was welcome to join? Any airman was welcome to join mm-hmm. the team. We brought in some civilians. We brought in some family members. We occasionally had to tell an airman that would sign up for like a really technical climb, like, hey, this climb isn't safe for you. But if you just hang out, you know, stay with us, we'll get you up on, like, say, Australia, which anyone can really do. Mm-hmm. So we tried to involve everyone. And one of our sayings in my program was, we are inclusive, not exclusive. And that was really important to us. And out of all the airmen who've summited the mountains, what was their feedback? How do you know it benefited them? Oh, my gosh. I just got back yesterday from Thanksgiving in Yosemite, where I met up with two people that did the seven summits with us. And one guy immediately, like, he has this huge grin on his face, and we're in the national park, and he pulls out one of his jackets that has our Air Force seven summits patches. And you could just see, like, he was so proud to put it on. So... I think the feedback is not only was it a sense of accomplishment, but I think people were just mostly proud to be on a team that was doing something that many thought was impossible. That was a big part of their sense of identity. I think, though, deep down inside, that time in nature with them was something they'll never, ever, ever forget, like that camaraderie at altitude with challenge and difficulty. Yeah, it was amazing. I wish we could just dial a friend Mm -hmm. right now and just you pick anybody that went on any of the climbs And we just call them up and we're like, okay, lightning round. How awesome was this climb? (laughs) And how awesome was this time? Mm -hmm. And are you using it now as an airman still? Mm -hmm. Ten years later, are you still using it? I bet you they would say yes. What about you? I use it all the time. I practice yoga every week. I meditate. A lot of times when I close my eyes and I kind of go into a deeper state, I immediately have visions of the team on Mount Everest or the team in Antarctica. There's these indelible visions in my mind that have come from them. And that tells you 10 years later or more, I can snap my fingers. I'm right back into it. So it's a deep part of my psyche. I think the biggest lesson I took from it was when people say that can't be done or that's too much work, or I just don't think we can do it. I'm always, oh yeah, you think so? Mm -hmm. I was like, hey, people told us we wouldn't be able to do the seven summits, Mm -hmm. but we're the first team and the first military in the world to ever do it. So if we can pull that off as a bunch of captains without really any funding, then we can dang near do anything. Mm-hmm. And I, I leave tomorrow for SOS. I'm going to go speak at SOS again. So not only did it affect me personally, this experience, but now the experience continues to affect more generations of airmen. As our climbers, we have climbers that go out and speak all over the Air Force and America about their experiences. So it was such an impactful experience that it reverberates through the Air Force. Mm-hmm. You said in one of your interviews that out of all the climbs you've made, the hardest one you had to make was those two flights of stairs up to mental health. And especially coming from somebody who is coming from special operations background, why was that so for you? (laughs) It was definitely the hardest climb. Uh, All right, paint the background. I'm a kind of a mid-level captain and I just left England where I was flying the MC-130, and I got really lucky, and I got it picked up to be one of the initial early flyers of the CV-22 Osprey. I had left England maybe a year after a fatal accident that killed several of my friends in Albania, and some of my classmates had recently died in a plane crash, and you know I'm moving around all over the place, right? So there's a lot of turbulence in my life, and airmen, we get turbulence all the time. But we're just kind of our mentality in the military is let's just hunker down and get it done, right? Let's not show any issues. And maybe if you got some issues, you go out and drink or party with your friends and go video game or blow off steam that way. Whatever it may be, some weird, I don't know, complex number of factors happened in my life. But depression obviously had set it. And you and I both know, like, you can't necessarily know when depression is going to come. But luckily, I had the whereabouts to recognize I had some issues. So I had this cute little house, like awesome little home in Albuquerque. And I had a couch out front undercover. And I noticed that instead of sitting there reading a book or calling my family like I would normally do and cooking a meal and working out, all of those healthy skills I had, they just were slowly disappearing. And I found myself 
sleeping on the couch. I would literally come back from work, put my bag down on my front porch and lay down on my couch and Mm -hmm. go to bed in my flight suit. Mm -hmm. And I would wake back up and be like, oh, better go inside and shave. Mm -hmm. I guess I fell asleep here. Mm -hmm. And then I would just be, I noticed I was eating Wendy's for like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I was like, oh shit, Mm -hmm. this is not good. I mean, Mm -hmm. I could see it. So I kind of did a self-assessment and I didn't really know what tools to turn to, but I knew like mental health was there. And you're right. As a special operator, you get your TS, your top secret, special compartmentalize, think you're Johnny badass. I don't need that, but I knew something was wrong. So it was two flights of stairs, if I remember right, up to mental health. And I kept thinking like, oh my God, I don't want to go up there. Mm -hmm. And then finally I was like, what do I have to lose? Did you not have anything to lose? I didn't. I, I mean... I think when it comes to your life and your well-being and your health, mm-hmm. that is what you could lose, right? And if you're depressed and you don't have anything else, I guess I felt like I had nothing left to lose. Like I needed to go. What happens if you're depressed for a long period of time? Do you hurt yourself? Mm-hmm. Do you make a mistake that changes your career forever? Mm-hmm. I guess I was at one of those points where I was like, hey, I feel like I'm at rock bottom. I may as well just go up. Mm-hmm. But I had also had a gut feeling like everything would be okay. I, you know, People tell you, you can go to mental health, you'll be fine. You can do this. So I was like, well, I'll just go up and at least I'll kind of like case the joint, right? And I'll mm-hmm. kind of like walk around and look in the windows, make sure it doesn't look scary or weird. Mm-hmm. And I went in and they had me fill out like a form. And I was like, oh boy, I did it. Like I'm in the office. Oh, I hope this doesn't mess things up. And pretty quickly I went in and met with a captain psychologist. And it was just like the most relaxed, chill, non-medical, laid back experience I've had. And the guy's like, yeah, it looks like you're having a down week, aren't you? And I was like, oh, that's an understatement. (laughs) And we developed a quick relationship. And that hardest climb ended with a climb by just after two sessions, he said, hey, this weekend, your prescription. Mm -hmm. And he literally prescribed the outdoors. He said, I want you to go hike the tallest peak outside of Albuquerque, which if you've ever been there, it's beautiful. It's right on the edge of town. It's called Sandia Peak. It's like 10,000 foot. It's got a well-known trail up it. And he goes, you're not working out. You're not taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, you say that the outdoors is your coping. Go hike it and come back and see me next week. Were you surprised at that prescription? No. I mean, I think once he got to know me, I guess I wasn't surprised. What I was surprised about was he's like, hey, this won't have any impact on your career. I don't have to tell anyone. You're not at risk of hurting yourself. You're not at risk of hurting anyone else. Mm -hmm. Your only work right now is flying the sim. He's like, sounds good to me right now. Mm -hmm. I was like, whoa, you're telling me this kind of is a safe space. And you're not here to tell me what's wrong with me. You're here to help me like recover. And so I thought that was awesome. Everything felt like really just as good as it could get. And so I went and hiked the mountain. And that was a good reminder for me that sweat is like my best medicine. Mm -hmm. That is my antidepressant. That's my upper. That's my get you high type thing is just getting out there and sweating in the outdoors. And when I came back and saw him later that week, I was a different person and I'd turn the page on that episode. Yeah, that sounds like it was a really rewarding experience. Was it kind of a long-term treatment or? No, I mean, honestly, I think I saw him twice after that. And he reminded me of identifying when I need to be proactive, right? He helped me chart, hey, if I find that I'm not eating healthy or I'm starting to not sleep as much, like maybe I'm watching a lot more TV, I know my problem signs now because of that impact. That's what we need more of in the military is We need people that be able to almost self-diagnose, not that they have an illness, but when they have like these warning signs, like, hey, I haven't been out to the gym and I'm a healthy person. Mm -hmm. If I haven't been to the gym in two or three weeks, that probably tells me I'm working too hard and I know what'll happen. If I don't go to the gym or get out in nature, I'll start working too much. Then I'm going to start stressing. Then I'm going to stop doing like the social things I want to do and I can map it out. Mm -hmm. That's how it helped me. And have I gone to seek help in the past? Oh yeah, for like small relationship issues, you go to marriage counseling. I recognize now that that's a huge asset, but I haven't needed to go back on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Have you been able to talk to somebody about your experiences of losing friends and colleagues? Probably not as much as I should have. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned it quite often. I think all the articles that are reviewed, I think it comes up pretty frequently. It's not one of those issues that affects me as much now. I think what it really did is it lit a fire underneath me. It's not a pain that I carry as much as a kind of a torch of action. Their loss was a call to action. To be blunt and blatantly straightforward, it was scared to shit out of me because I had literally just flown that same mission the night before. 
And to know that in the blink of an eye, you're 24 years old and you could have died the night before, I think it just makes you realize like life is short and you got to get things done and don't sit around and talk about it or dream about it. Go do it. That's why I bring those guys up. And that wasn't the last fatal accident that my units were involved with. I lost friends later on in Afghanistan. And again, they just keep reminding me like, what would those people tell us? Mm. What would they tell us? Like if they could, if they could give us one message, I think from whatever the afterlife, I think it would be maximize every day and every second. We say it all the time. Live as though today was your last day. Mm -hmm. But how many people actually do it? Not many. Yeah. Do you feel like you're able to do that now? Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes on occasion. Yeah. When I get enough sleep. <laughs> But then sometimes I think I need less sleep because am I sleeping too much? And you, you and I can laugh about it, but it's a balancing act. Yeah. But I do think that there are losses I chose instead of the victim mentality and feeling a victim of this experience. I chose to use it as my springboard to encourage other people to get out. Mm -hmm. What was the hardest summit for you? You want to know the hardest summit of the seven summits would be the one that I actually didn't reach. I was on Denali, which was previously known as Mount McKinley, tallest peak in North America. I'm, as an American, very proud, right, that we have like this rugged, difficult mountain up in Alaska that we can call ours. And I got together a good team and we were going up. We just got some pretty bad weather and it slowed us down and slowed us down. We had to hunker down, I think, five days in a tent. We really couldn't get out. I mean, the only thing we got out for was to get the snow off the tent so it wouldn't collapse and then get back in like our minus 40 degree sleeping bags and just try to stay warm. When the weather cleared, finally, I knew I was coming near the end of my leave window, but we still had enough time to get to the top. So one day before the summit, we do what you call a cash and carry. You carry a bunch of extra gear up higher. You cash it. So you like dig a hole in the snow drop it in and put a bunch of markers on it and then cover it up and then you come back down. And that meant we were ready to go to the summit the next day. Well, I got a phone call on my sat phone because AFSOC had loaned us a sat phone. We were doing blogging and media updates. We were doing safety updates and some resiliency updates and really just trying to help tell a positive story about airmen. But that goes two ways. So instead of just me giving the info out, I got info back from my unit that our deployment of the first deployment of the Osprey, the CV-22, the Air Force version to Iraq, was getting bumped up and I needed to come home immediately. What was your reaction? I was like, okay, yeah, well, no problem. I will come back immediately, but I'll be at the summit tomorrow <laughs> and then we'll get back down. We'll need a day to just pack up our gear. And then I think I can make it out to the airstrip after that. And I think it was more of a test of me that they were doing. They're like, well, actually, we really want you back right now. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Come back now. And I tried to say, look, it might save me 12 hours in the long run because the logistics of down climbing, if I leave my team, now I've got to go find other climbers to come down with me because you don't want to down climb by yourself. But long story short, I turned around because they said, do you want to be a part of Air Force history and the first combat mission of the Osprey? Or do you want to stay on this mountain and climb it? And I said, well, it's all about the team. So the team kept going. They summited the next day and I flew out that same day. Mm -hmm. So that was the tough one, but that was kind of emotionally, but physically, I think it was harder than Mount Everest. There's no Sherpa. There's no logistics supply chain to help you get your gear up. When you get dropped off on Denali, it's a pretty big deal. Everything you have with you is all you have. You don't get resupplied. Mm -hmm. You don't get to, so have to carry water and yeah i mean you can boil it but yeah all the gas is yours you really are on an expedition everest these days and other large commercial mountains have like this just oh, massive yeah. supply train of yaks and people and down in south america they got mules going to 14,000 feet and on denali it's just you yeah and that's awesome but it was physically the hardest challenging yeah and kilimanjaro we had somebody making luxurious meals every morning. Yeah, It's and like popcorn, better. right? Popcorn, did you get popcorn uh, up we there? We didn't get popcorn, oh, no, man. But, but omelets with fruit. And, uh. and what's cool about that on Kilimanjaro is at first I was like, we don't need all of this. We're tough Air Force mountaineers. We mm -hmm. don't need anyone to carry our bags and cook for us. But then they basically made it clear, this is mandatory 
because it supports the local economy and we need this. Right. And I said, well, then that makes sense. Why not? And it was right. so affordable. Mm-hmm. And what a fun group to have all the people from Kenya and Tanzania and all over there and they're yeah. singing in Swahili. I yeah. thought that was maybe the most enjoyable mountain we did. And actually, I wanted to ask you a question about this. In high altitudes, it's not uncommon to experience symptoms of altitude sickness. And with that comes clouded judgment, fatigue, and maybe apathy. And I know for me, from my experience climbing Kilimanjaro, I've had this experience of apathy and my summit was completely anticlimactic. And I, and I read about it in, in books as well, that people get to the top and like, and this is it. Have you experienced anything like that? I've experienced the physical elements of acute mountain sickness. My first time on Kilimanjaro, I think it was really the only time I felt like a strong amount of altitude sickness. I felt fine until the last day. And the last day, I just felt like we'd been going so slow that I wanted to really go from that, what mm-hmm. was it, a 14 or 15,000 foot camp to the top. So that's a four or 5,000 foot day, which is big. And I was like, all right, you guys, I'm going to go with a faster group. I want to like jog up this. You know what they tell you, pole, pole, slow, slow. Mm-hmm. And I went fast, fast. And I just remember I vomited. I was like, oh, Aww. I feel terrible. And it was because I moved too quick. Mm-hmm. That was the first really big peak I did was Killy. Yeah, because I did it actually before I started the seven summits. I've done it twice. Mm-hmm. But since then, I've slowed down. I take Dimox, I t- prophylactic kind of medicine. Mm-hmm. But apathy, I don't think I've ever really felt apathetic. I usually have an abundance of energy. Okay. <laughs> just me. <laughs> and I do it with groups of people where I feel like often I'm the guide and I'm kind of the energy behind it. Yeah. So that leadership role kicks in and you can't really be apathetic when you're a leader, especially when you're so excited to see everyone else make the summit. Yeah. That's what gives me my energy. Even if I feel bad, cheering them on and seeing them get to the top, that is definitely the cherry on top for most of my Air Force experience. Mm-hmm. It's never been a big challenge for you. Sounds like from what you described, physically at least. Yeah. Once I slow down after Killy, I usually feel really good at out. Yeah. I feel almost better the higher I go. Oh, interesting. I know. It's weird. It's like, yeah, some superpowers. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit of Sherpa. Maybe that's why I'm so short. Maybe there's some ancient Sherpa DNA in there. What would you say to your critics, to those perhaps who suggest that outdoor activities are nice and they could question the general's ability of the outdoor activities, you know, what you learn in outdoor activities? to our everyday lives and to resilience. If I'm able to climb Kilimanjaro Everest, how does that translate into my overall mental health, well-being, or grit? Gosh, I think that all those elements of like the good parts of the important parts of our lives are healthy parts of our lives. Each one of them could be, you would have to almost argue them individually, right? We can't just paint with a giant broad brush. Except, I don't know, I almost feel like I'm wrong by saying that. I mean, I, I recently read The Nature Fix which is a book I recommend anyone in the military should read it. It talks about not just the value of being outside, but the value of bringing the outdoors to the indoors, like plants in your office alone can change your productivity. Mm -hmm. Different geometric patterns can change your mental outlook, right? Like if we go into fractals and they talk about how nature actually is made up of all kinds of fractals and they meet one specific area of a shape ratio and that boom once the human eye sees that it starts to change all of your blood chemistry and your brain chemistry Mm. back to your question if people were naysayers well i would say hey where do you want to begin let's not just say nature makes your life better Mm -hmm. i think there's enough research out there and it's really growing right now but i would say you find one area that we want to discuss and let's talk about is it leadership because here we've done our own research on leadership and character and how powerful outdoor activities are in developing that. The Nature Fix talks about lowering your cortisol and your stress and increasing your feel-good drugs, your dopamine, and your serotonin starts changing, right? And your heart rate variability really starts to improve. Or even just nature bathing. Like I was in Japan two months ago with my sister. We, We literally went on a walking pilgrimage. And I was thinking that the research shows that just walking outdoors and smelling you would probably know better. I think they call them like the phenols, some sort of smell that the- Pheromones? Yeah, it's on the line with a pheromone, Mm -hmm. but it's what the trees and the plants can give off. Okay. And just smelling that for 15 minutes will basically make you healthier with some level of after effect. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a broad question you ask, but my answer back would be, there is research, there is data, and those data say 
that we're on to something. Mm-hmm. And then I would just simply go, have you ever enjoyed a sunrise or a sunset? Or I would turn it back to them. I'd say, mm-hmm. would you rather spend your whole day indoors or outdoors on a beautiful, sunny, perfect day? Whatever your perfect weather is. Right. I think most humans are like, well, I think I would like to get outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of like you don't need to have research. Yeah, it is primal. I think one of the best things to do is turn it back to people. Mm-hmm. And especially one of the funniest things is you look at dating apps. I always ask my students about what's going on with dating. And hey, I'm a single guy right now. I'm looking. And what does everybody like to say on their profile? Oh, I love to be outside. Mm-hmm. I love nature. Mm-hmm. I love adventure. Mm-hmm. I love travel. Yeah. Okay, do I need data to show why that's valuable? No. Mm-hmm. It's deep inside of us. And some people say... We just love nature and we do better in nature because we've spent tens of thousands of years deep in it. And we've only spent the last, what, couple hundred years in real dense civilization. Yeah. We just talked about the the buildings, how they design, right? How your building is so open, has windows. And majority of our offices are little cubicles. We're closed off and we don't get to see the outside. You got it. And maybe we're not designed to do that, to live in those spaces. So I would just encourage people, there's data out there. The Nature Fix is a great argument overall from how do you improve the workplace to how do you help children with ADHD to how do you help what are other nations doing for long-term care. I think it's the University of Utah has actually been working with the Veterans Administration. They've got a really strong research arm that is looking at why does nature-based therapy help PTSD and veterans so much. So it's out there. I'd be happy to chat with anybody about it and at least point them in the right direction. I had a similar conversation with Dr. Aaron Moffat. That's one of my episodes, just recent episodes. He's a sports psychologist and would like to hear your view on this. I like this idea of behavioral modifications and what are the points of failure in behavioral modifications. If you're trying to implement the program and you don't really work a lot with individuals, when I see your work, I think more of kind of systemic changes, right? So when you think of these implementations of systemic changes, what do you see as potential failures in those systems if you try to modify systems behaviors? Boy, it almost goes to some of the research we've been doing here in how do we improve emotional intelligence. One of the core models we use here at the Air Force Academy in the Center for Character and Leadership Development is called the ARDA model. I don't want to go too far into it, but there's a decision and action gap. And that's where lying, cheating, stealing, that's where like unethical behavior often happens, where the students face a decision and then they act in a way that later on they're like, oh boy, I wish I had not done that action. I knew at the time it probably wasn't right. And when I look back on it, I know there's an element that knew it wasn't healthy, but I acted for some impulsive way. One of our hypotheses in the research I'm doing is if the more emotionally intelligent that we help people be, the more likely they are to narrow that decision action gap and even remove it where they can go, I'm about to do something that my animal brain wants to do or my social, the social norm is encouraging me to do. But if they're mindful of their body and their feelings, right, then they can act on kind of that deeper instinct. Something tells me this isn't right. Mm -hmm. Failure in behavioral modification would be? Emotional intelligence, perhaps. Yeah, you're talking about behavioral modification, which is a bit outside of my realm. Remember, that's not a degree I have or classical training. That's very much what you do. (laughs) But you're right. And when I look at people in the outdoors and I think of behavioral modification, I work with that all the time. I work with students that might be overly type A and just taking over the conversation and not allowing people to participate in perhaps a leadership activity to the opposite, the person that just doesn't want to come out of their shell. Mm -hmm. How do I encourage that behavioral modification? Mm -hmm. A lot of times I'll ask them, how are you feeling? What are you feeling? And if they, often the quiet person will look really deep into themselves. And what do you think the type A person looks at? Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, I'm fine. I'm totally good. Mm -hmm. So if I help them look at the group, how is the group's emotions? Then that very quickly helps them start to change their behavior when I help them find their weakness, which is whether looking out external or internal. But that would be something I'm interested, I would tell you at least, is I think emotional intelligence and behavioral modification probably go hand in hand. Yeah. Do you think that we can incentivize resiliency? 
Good question. Can we incentivize resiliency? Right away, the businessman in me goes, are we talking dollars and cents? We have to look at it in two ways. The businessman in me says, we got to talk dollars and cents. Then the pragmatic officer, career guy says, how do I get my leaders to create time for it and my followers, my airmen, to actually want to participate? Because it could be very, very cost-effective or high incentive for the government to create programs. But if we don't have participants, we got a problem. So let's look at the dollar and cents side. I teamed up with a cohort at DU at Denver University when I was a part-time reservist. And they were looking for a program, a cause for their social, they had to do like a social research, social business plan. And I said, what about doing research into the value of resiliency pre-injury, proactive? Mm -hmm. And so we did a bunch of numbers. We're looking at the billions of dollars that active duty spends, or not necessarily active duty, uniformed. And then the behemoth, the giant amount of money that the Veterans Administration spends across Mm -hmm. the lifetime of an airman or the lifetime of a soldier. And it's huge. But my question to you and our listeners would be, how do we incentivize the preventative side Mm -hmm. that inoculates or prevents people from having to go and get on disability? So when we were looking at the billions of dollars that are spent mostly reactive in the reactive way, lost income, disability payments, I mean, a psychologist for the rest of your life, it gets pretty expensive, especially when we're talking about meds and inpatient or outpatient. So I agree, we need to incentivize it. And I think one of the things we look at is how much cheaper is it to prevent a resiliency kind of injury than treat it? And I think that anecdotally, we just look at flu shots. The government knows it's much cheaper to give everybody, to mandate everyone has a flu shot than to wait for us to get sick and then give us time off and then medicate us and whatnot. Mm -hmm. What is the cost of a suicide? What is the cost of somebody that gets depressed and goes out and does a career changing, gets a DUI because they were really sad and they decide to drink a little bit? What is the cost of that? What's the cost of a spouse getting beaten up because their airman is dealing with resiliency? You know, they're failing at being resilient. That cost is outrageous. I think we incentivize it, A, financially, by taking some of that reactive money and doing innovative projects to figure out how can we reduce mental health visits. And without going too far into the, like the data we had and the numbers, the crunching, we found that if we could reduce mental health visits by 3% using a program akin to what the British use, like an outdoor education program, it would pay for what we estimated would be every airman that wanted to do it to do it for at least five days a year. If we could reduce it by, you know, five to 7%, now we're starting to put a significant amount of money back into the coffers of the government. Now, if I tell you, hey, if we incentivize mental health and you can get 10 more F-22s out of it a year, now we're talking serious changes to the priorities around here, right? And maybe we do create five days off for people to do programs without trying to make it too long of a response. Now, how do we incentivize the airmen to do it? Let's say you and I sit down with a team of people and we say, we believe we can save 3% of mental health costs. 3% equates to this many hundreds of millions of dollars. And you know, we can actually start saving the government money. All right, the government's going to say, yes, we're incentivized, we're in. But now how do I incentivize a commander to give an airman five days off to do an in-depth program? And how do I convince an airman to come forward when they're afraid? I think that's the big question. Not the money. The money's easy. Mm-hmm. And can you think of the ways to do that? Yeah. I've got all kinds of ideas I'd like to do. Here's the idea. Let's say you and I are in the tech industry and we want to come up with a new disruptive technology. We want to take the military, 2.2 million people, and we want to change this approach to mental health that is not working. Like the resiliency thing is not working. So what would you and I do? We probably wouldn't just come up with an idea on the back of a napkin and try it. We'd probably do market research first. Mm-hmm. We would figure out what are our competitors doing and what are our near peers doing and mm-hmm. what are other blue ribbon benchmark programs. That's where I would start. And I look at England and they do a program called Adventurous Training. And when you join the military, doesn't matter which branch of service, they say, welcome, welcome, Lieutenant Marshall or Airman Basic Smith. We would really like to get you into a resiliency program early. And we have 12 outdoor sports for you. 
And it's like skydiving, paragliding, rock climbing, mountaineering, mountain biking, hiking, offshore sailing. It's a pretty significant list. And they say, it's not mandatory, but if you would like, we'll send you to one of these courses. We'll teach you to do, let's say it's mountain biking. We know that it can be stressful and it'll challenge you, but you're also going to immediately start building a community that you can turn to when time gets tough. And we have students come from England that were out here for our summer program that I was running with our team here. And I love to ask them, I just say, hey, what are some of the reasons you joined the military? And generally they go, oh, we wanted to serve. We wanted to be in uniform. And they're like, the opportunities are great, especially like adventurous training. They bring it up on their own. Mm -hmm. And I say, tell me about adventurous training. And they all often say things like, oh, well, it is the single reason I continue to stay in because I get one or two weeks a year where I can go off on these amazing adventures and build up a community. I really feel like I have a family in the military. So somehow England has found a way to get their service members to buy in. Yeah. We could use that. I'd be so curious to look at the data. And they don't have enough yet. And Mm -hmm. that's one of the things we found. We looked at research on PTSD between the British. We're like, okay, they have this DOD-wide program. What happens if we did something like it? Do they have data that shows if it works or not? And I would say it's not the most conclusive, but we have found two papers that show significantly less PTSD for British military members in same combat mission types or even on the same mission as Americans. Mm -hmm. And my cohort friends up in DU, their initial numbers came up between 9 and 19%. One study said 9% less than Americans. One study said 19% less. Mm-hmm. If there's two studies that say the British have significantly less reported, you know, that's a high point right there. It's reported. Maybe they have a reporting issue, but there's got to be something there. There's got to be a kernel of wisdom we can take from our ally if they are getting less PTSD in very similar combat fighting situations. Is it because they're adventurous training? They've been doing that for 30 years. And if the people I speak to in the MOD, the Ministry of Defense, say that's one of the highlights for staying in the military and their sense of community, and then there's data that says they're doing better at resiliency than we are, well, we should explore that. Mm. As I think what would be equivalent in our military, maybe something like a SEER training, right? So like maybe SV-80, maybe if you take a thousand people who've gone through the training and compared their rates of trauma or depression or suicides. To those who didn't go through the training, I wonder if that would be compared. And even cooler, because that's already set. And all we have to do is a pre and a post, right? And then follow them. Mm-hmm. What happens if we had a control set of people that don't do SV80 or SEER? Mm-hmm. Then we have people that go through SEER. But remember, SEER is focused primarily on what we would call here hard skills. Mm-hmm. Can you survive? Do you know like the right mentality to resist? Can you evade and can you escape? Mm-hmm. But do we talk about emotions? What happens if you got divorced? After you got back from SEER, Mm -hmm. can you take the SEER resiliency? Because SEER builds grit. It builds that mindset. It helps you build grit. I won't say it makes you gritty because according to Duckworth, Angela Duckworth says grit takes a lot more time than a three-week program. Mm -hmm. But does it give you a resilient idea of yourself? Does it make you feel like maybe you're going to be a more gritty person in a hardcore military situation? But what happens if you get in a fight with your spouse? Mm -hmm. Or what happens if when you get home from SEER, your bank account shows that you have $10,000 less than you thought you had. Is yeah. it transferable is what I want to know. I think the British one, they try to step back from the military setting and offer their service members an opportunity to practice grit and resiliency outside of uniform. And I think that makes it more transferable to you are you, my friend, I hate to say it, you are more likely to have a traumatic stress event out of uniform than in uniform. Mm-hmm. And I, even in my current job, I am certainly more likely to have traumatic stress, not in uniform right now. Because I mean, I teach at the academy. Yeah. And that's what we have to keep in mind is what are we preparing our military members to be resilient for? Is it for being a POW, which 0.00001% will probably ever be? Mm-hmm. Or is it for those daily like, oh shit, I've got financial, medical relationship problems? One of my podcasts, I interviewed Dr. Percival, who is a seer psychologist, and he's kind of a father of seer psychology. And he talks about the difference between hardiness and grit. Mm. And so hardiness is this kind of like 
I'm just going to plow through, right? This kind of what you described, going through these very hard skills that you maybe learn in the SEER training, but having a flexibility, a mental flexibility or cognitive flexibility to deal with your spouse when you don't get along or to deal with financial problems, to deal with your family, then to kind of overcome that in a very flexible mental way, that's more of a grit or resilience. And so it's kind of more fluid almost, right? Yes, I totally agree. In the special operations community, hardiness is there and ability to flex on the fly, right? Get the mission done no matter how tough it gets. If it's terrible weather, terrible living conditions, you see ugly things. If I understand your description of hardiness, that would be do whatever it takes to get the mission done. That's right. Resiliency is when the stress gets dialed back down, I think. Mm -hmm. And then- Or just changes. Or changes, you're right, Mm -hmm. changes. Mm -hmm. You're right, changes from maybe that deployment to now I'm back home and I've got a wife and kids. Mm -hmm. Or now I'm back home and I'm single and I'm lonely. Mm -hmm. And you can't just plow through that with that military attitude. People try. Right. But I think resiliency- is likely that part where we develop those positive coping skills. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I feel like we often miss. Yeah. You know, in my career, I see the hardiness being taught, but I don't see preventative, proactive coping skills being taught other than let's talk about it. Right. That is one thing we do, right? We say, let's talk about it. But I think with the work I'm doing here at the Academy, in experiential, active learning, we can talk about it, but at some point we need to start practicing it. Yeah. Did you ever read that book, Resilience, by the Navy SEAL? Mark Grecian, he got in the politics. I have not. It's a gathering of letters. He based it off some letters. He wrote one of his SEALs that was talking about killing himself. And he wrote letters to this man talking about some of the philosophy behind grit and resiliency. Mm-hmm. And he asked the member, hey, do you mind if I like make a book out of this correspondence we've had? It's a beautiful book. I recommend it. It's actually, I think it's just called Resilience. Okay. One of the things I remember is he gets some data research involved, but he talks about resiliency being an exercise that you've got to build up a muscle. If you and I talk about fitness all day long, that's probably not going to help you pass your PT test. Mm -hmm. You and I can talk about fitness to at least get an idea of what is it. Maybe I can give you some ideas on how to train but you got to get your ass out there and train Mm -hmm. and build up your muscles and build up your lung capacity. His argument is resiliency is the same thing. We can talk about it all day. It doesn't necessarily make you more resilient. My big belief, my passion is let's talk about it. Let's dissect some of what it is. What is grit versus resiliency, maybe versus hardiness? Let's talk about the language. Let's not beat it up too much. Now that you have a simple idea, now let's go hike a mountain. Let's go out to my ropes course. Let's go out and do some type of challenging, stressful environment where I can actually make you flex your muscle, Mm -hmm. your emotional, mental, physical, spiritual muscle, and actually start doing some reps. And that's where the British have it right. Every year, they let their troops take one week to two weeks off a year, permissive TDY, to go practice resiliency in a very focused, controlled environment. We talk about it, what, one or two days a year? But where are we actually going out and doing the reps? And that's where the experiential learning cycle comes in. We need to have rep after rep after rep where you can learn what are you doing right and wrong? What works for you? What doesn't work for you? We can't wait for you to be traumatically injured and then expect that somehow you're going to magically know how to be resilient. It's the same idea of me giving a young airman a book of exercises and how to pass the PT test and expecting them to just talk about it. And then when the day the PT test comes, what, they're going to ace it? Hell no. Yeah. I like to use the expression distress tolerance, that we don't teach that. Distress tolerance. We don't teach that, and but we expect that of, of yeah. airmen, right? Yeah. And even basic, what you talked about earlier, basic emotional intelligence. When I have patients in my office who are 45 years old and I ask them to name basic emotions, sometimes they can't. They don't have words for that. So how do we expect them to tolerate distress when they don't know what the words for <laughs> distress are, right? Oh, man, that hurt. it actually hurts my body, right. my mindfulness. Right. I feel like a, yeah. a, an ache in my heart and my yeah. stomach. Yeah. Like that's my physical reaction when you say that. Right, right. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. But we don't teach that. And we no. don't teach that in school. We don't teach that thing you were in no, the military. Yeah. No, we don't. Yeah. And how cool would it be if during our leadership education, which is what we're thinking about here at the academy is, 
well, where does emotional intelligence play into even just basic training and basic leadership education? How can you be a good leader if you're emotionally ignorant, Mm -hmm. right? You can tell people what to do. And here's a common example. We're talking about distress tolerance. Mm -hmm. Like this is not the healthy leader, but the typical leader out of a movie or something, they see someone having a hard day. And instead of being like, hey, how's it going? Like, you want to walk and grab a coffee and talk? They're like, buck it up, soldier. Mm -hmm. Get on your horse. Mm -hmm. We can do this, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Because sometimes we raise emotionally unintelligent leaders Mm -hmm. that want to get the mission done, and then they don't make room for distress, right? They just say, hide it. Mm -hmm. Let's be hardy 24 hours a day. Mm -hmm. Let's not make room for true emotional intimacy, if you want. Like resilient intimacy. Mm -hmm. Do you have your own way of dealing with emotional distress? So like, do you have mantra? I know you have a lot of rituals like yoga and meditation. In the moment when things get tough, what do you say to yourself? Sometimes I just want to choke the person across from me, right? I recognize that. Okay. Anger kind of comes out. But I, yeah, what's helped me is recognizing when I need to use my coping skills. In the past, my coping skill was shut down, right? Be hardy okay, I'm in an emotionally triggered state and I'm angry, sad, frustrated. My training was just suck it up. Don't worry about it. That emotion isn't necessary to get the job done. Even if I feel like my boundaries have been completely blown apart, it was just get the job done. And then I would try to de-stress later and I'd probably go drink or go do like some high risk activity. Huh, it sounds like your average 18 to 24 year old airman. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, in fact, I meditated this morning what I've been doing is I'll come in sometimes early. I find meditating at home is valuable, but meditating at work for 10 minutes, guided. I use an app called the Waking Up app. Sam Harris okay. does it. It's amazing. It's free to start with. There's a lot of free parts. It's 10 minutes. It takes you from the beginner level to some really heavy duty stuff. But I find meditating in the environment that's stressful, like helps set almost like a body mind expectation. Yeah. I've gotten much better at giving my body time during lunch to go burn off energy. So I will swim or run or lift for at least 50 minutes. Mm -hmm. We teach a class here called the Corporate Athlete. And the big takeaway, it's actually a Johnson & Johnson product that we have licensed teachers, like I'm one of our teachers for our instructors. And the big takeaway there is the on and off. If you aren't going between your high-powered effort and your recovery and then back into active, engaged energy, and then back into recovery. If you're not cycling throughout the day, then you're going to burn out. So I make sure to cycle. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds weird, but I've been fasting. It doesn't do, sound weird at all. To some of our people at <laughs> my, like I grew up with a Southern mother who made fresh homemade biscuits nope. and eggs and, you know, mm-hmm. eat your breakfast. And I ate my breakfast and I always was proud to be a breakfast eater. I try to innovate. So that's one of the things I'm always trying to see what else works for my body. I try not to get on long-term kicks. I just want to do a little micro test. Mm -hmm. So I did a little test of intermittent fasting and I skip breakfast in the morning Mm -hmm. and I find that I have better energy all day. I don't crash Mm -hmm. at several times. I need way less coffee. So intermittent fasting mixed with a workout during the day has really helped me physically. And then emotionally, I would say meditating and do yoga. I'm a weekly yoga practicer. Mm -hmm. And then socially, I make sure to get out with friends. We have at least one week a night where all my friends do a potluck, but I love getting out with my cadets. Talk about a social red line, like really flexing the muscle for an old man like me. But when I get my 18 to 24-year-old cadets and I still run our mountaineering program and I'll go down and talk to them at the club and we'll go on weekend trips. And so that's both physical, but it's also really social. Like I love to hear what they're up to. And so I guess I'm just trying to hit all four pillars. I got a couple little practices, but I would recommend that fast and that occasional workout. Read about the corporate athlete, come to the Air Force Academy and we'll teach you. We've got a flight doctor here, Dr. Reagan Stiegman, and she is one of the biggest proponents throughout the Air Force and the DOD for plant-based, veggie-based nutrition. And she's pushed videos of weightlifters and marathoners and all these things. And it's interesting. There's quite a few people in the soft and SOCOM world that are really getting more and more interested in that and lowering that inflammation. And I think what we eat has to make you more resilient yeah. or less resilient. Because look at me, what did my body turn to when I was depressed? 
what did my body turn to? It did not turn to the light, healthier veggies. It turned to the fat and the carb and the salt of fast food. I notice now if I eat that, it just doesn't make me operate as well. If I eat the healthier food, I tend to be more resilient. Yeah, sometimes we're looking for some complicated answers about what resiliency is. And a lot of the times those are very simple things like take care of basic stuff. Yeah. Like food, food intake, calorie intake, exercise, energy, fluctuation during the day. Resiliency is, I mean, that is the tough nut that the Pentagon hasn't cracked. Mental health experts haven't cracked. No one can crack it because it's so complex, right? When you look at physical, mental, social, and spiritual, right? You could spend your entire lifetime just trying to crack the spiritual pillar of resiliency. Gurus are trying it forever. Look at all the diet fads out there trying to help you with your physical, just dieting alone can consume you. So to try to get all four of those pillars together, it's a lifetime act, but you ask good questions on how do you do these little micro hacks to make it work? It shouldn't be an all-encompassing effort in terms of just one of those pillars. And if you were in charge and you could change one thing on a massive scale to increase resilience in service members, what would it be? Oh. That would be a dream come true. I think we are right at the tipping point to find this proactive, regularly scheduled stress inoculation. And I think that one thing I would change, and I'm going to even pitch it to the Secretary of the Air Force's office, they've been interested in some of the work we're doing with experiential education. The vice chief was here this summer and a congresswoman, and they're like, whoa, if you guys are changing the way cadets develop emotional intelligence and they love it, then maybe we could grow it into resiliency. And my pitch would be to change one thing, let's start doing small prototypes that are data-driven. Let's do some real research of how many days a year could we send airmen out for to start to build that muscle, right? To flex that muscle we were talking about and help them build a community and or a skill that they can use to proactively fight traumatic stress. So the one big picture would be, if it works for the British, let's start a program in America where airmen can sign up for a week of stress inoculation or resiliency exercise a year, one week a year. That's how I would start to change things. And if after a year or two, it shows that the data says, hey, we're not saving money and people are still killing themselves at increasing rates, then I'll admit defeat and move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. But that's how I'd change it. Excellent. And my last question I always ask it of all of my guests, what are some of your words of wisdom to those airmen, all service members who are struggling with difficult times? One, I would say there's no one way. That's my favorite thing I tell my students. Some people, they'll tell you what their favorite diet or what their religion is or some way to solve your problems, but there is no one way. And if you think you've tried every way to solve your depression or your mental anguish or your social issues, there's always some way. And, and if you can't find it, create one. Go out there and just do what you need to do to get healthier. And you can be the trailblazer. Like that's one of the cool things that changed your depression or change your difficulty into a beacon for other people. And then I would just say, get outside, try nature. Just 15 minutes, they say, of walking in a true forest. They say even in a park. But if you can smell nature and get out there, it'll start to change your body and your body chemistry, it'll start to connect you to maybe something a little bit of a higher power. And nature's always there. Anywhere in the world you are, you can find something to do outside. So get out there. Excellent. One of the things I'm excited about, I've been thinking about the value of not just a leadership laboratory, right? Like when you go to squadron officer school, that whole thing is a leadership laboratory and they have the LRC, the leadership reaction course. Remember where you've got to like move pieces of wood across a lava pit and none of your teammates can fall into the lava. And what I found though is there's generally only one way to solve those, but failure and success are valuable for debriefing. What I was thinking about recently is what do we have for like resiliency laboratories or stress laboratories? I would say coming into the military is essentially a stress laboratory, right? You get stressed out the moment you go through BCT. You get stressed when you're in pilot training. You're stressed when you're in combat. But where do we get the opportunity to do stop and pause and debrief mm -hmm. and take people in and out of that action. So one thing I pitched to our superintendent here, and we actually got a good deal of money to start designing it, is we need to rebuild our ropes course. 
it's kind of like 1980s technology. I see it as more of a fun recreational ropes course. And yeah, we can do leadership development on it, but these are the type of developmental programs that Boy Scouts do and elementary and middle school and high school. I'm like, darn it, we're the Air Force Academy, we're the military. How do we start helping people tweak and experiment and explore the body and mental and emotional sensations of stress? I think that would be a great start for resiliency. So we're pitching this monster idea I've got, and I'd like to build an at-height classroom that maybe it's high enough that it makes people uncomfortable. And I was showing you guys when you came into my building, we got some drawings, but I'd like to have this classroom just above the treetops here at the academy that has a partially clear floor. And I was thinking about, I think if you walk up some famous buildings in America, not like the Eiffel Tower, but more modern, and they've got these cantilever glass floors that stick out as you can walk out and there's nothing below you for hundreds of feet. And to me, even as a pilot, that sounds scary. Like I, right now I can even feel my heart rate going up thinking about standing on it and be like, oh my God, that's scary. But what happens if we started that as basic training or here at the academy, we had a psychologist or a sports psychologist or a behavioral scientist, or even the biology teacher goes up and you take your students up and every step going up. Hey, what do you all feel differently? Are our heart rates going up? Are you breathing more? Oh, well, is that your parasympathetic or your sympathetic? Why don't we start taking some of these ideas that are academic and letting the students experiment with it? And then they get up to the top and they're like, okay, if you're not scared up here, go stand out over the glass floor. Mm -hmm. And now we can even hook you up to systems that would let you practice meditation. Maybe that lets you practice heart math and you can start breathing and trying to lower your heart rate. That's my big exciting thing that if it works here at the academy, maybe we really can start giving people stressful opportunities with very specific chances to practice biofeedback, mental type work where you, you visualize, maybe I put you up on this stress tower that we're building and you visualize what's it gonna be like when I go to skydive. I'm gonna do skydiving class in three weeks, jump as we call it here. Maybe you're really scared, but if you go up into a scary situation and we talk you through it, now we can connect that mental, I can do it attitude to the body's, oh my God, I'm freaking out attitude. But that's what I'm really excited about here is that our leadership is open to this idea of exploring how do we use stress both in the outdoors and even just at height and connect it to making more resilient and more emotionally intelligent airmen that can regulate their own emotions and reactions. I think that could give us great leverage in future war. Here's one more thing to add that you know, people say, how do we go from talking about resiliency as an Air Force and into the doing, into the practicing resiliency? And I realize like the British have a very strong logistical footprint for their adventurous training, right? That they use for building resiliency and camaraderie and whatnot. And I was thinking, how would we implement that in America? And I realized we've got it, you guys. We have exactly what we need here. We have outdoor recreation at every major Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps base. I imagine the Coast Guard has it as well. And if you're an outlying one, you're usually connected to an outdoor recreation or a morale welfare recreation. What I think is what you just talked about of getting out there and teaching people this cycle of stress inoculation, helping people understand the different stages. What happens if you and your squadron want to go river raft here at the Air Force Academy? We have one of the biggest river rafting programs in the entire DOD. Right now you go and you river raft and you have fun and everyone barbecues when it's over and yeah, it was awesome. But what happens if we just took that blueprint? This is my big dream. I think it's easily scalable. We start teaching the river guides a little bit more about stress inoculation, not just military trainers, but river guides and outdoor rec guides. And they go, all right, we're going to go do something scary. We're going to go down a class five rapid. You could die. It is dangerous. What are you scared about? We let them know what's ahead. We maybe ask them, what are some coping skills you already know? We're going to introduce them. And now throughout the day, we can continue talking about it. It's still recreational. It's still fun. It's still team building. But at the end, when we debrief, now we've actually just done a complete stress inoculation experience. Yeah. And we haven't changed our logistical footprint. It's still outdoor rec. It could be rock climbing, hiking, snowshoeing, river rafting. All we need to do is start training our outdoor kind of leaders to know what language to use. Yeah. And I can't imagine that that would be too much to ask 
to do some trial runs with that. That would be my first step forward. Yeah. Thank you so much for this interview. Lieutenant Colonel Marshall from the Academy, thank you for the interview. You're welcome. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and crit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical or psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mil at mail dot